So I wrapped up John 5 last time I was sharing, and now we go into John 6. I think there's a lot of good things in John 6, and I hope we're able to communicate the beauty in there. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Father, we come before you and again give you thanks for your Son. It truly is a wonderful Savior. And we thank you for what it means that he's our Savior, that he fully saves and fully keeps and will and has taken the responsibility to bring us home in the end and raise us at the end. So we thank you for him and ask for your help as we look at your word to that you would open our eyes to the truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We need to do a little bit of review in John 5, not not really review, but kind of pick up a couple of concepts that the Lord, as he was talking to the Jews, things that he brought out. So the the first portion of John 5 is is that little story of the miracle of the guy that was uh, lame by the side of the pool, and and the Lord came and healed him. He didn't even know who the Lord was. So it, wasn't, it was kind of a unique situation that the guy had no faith. I mean, he, he didn't even know who Jesus was. How could he possibly have faith in the Lord? And yet he was healed. And then there, after that, and, it, and because the healing was on the Sabbath, the Jews took offense at that. And so the Lord told them in the next part from verse 16 on, he talks about how he, what he does is not as somebody that has gone independent of his father as a rebellious son, but it says he is operating as a, a fully mature son like you would see in a business where you've got the father start a business and the son grows into the business to where he has the same authority that, the, that his father has. So the Lord Jesus is operating in that way. Here's the father and he is the son and they're working together. So this healing on the Sabbath was not something that he was doing apart from the Father. It was actually, and it was exactly exactly what the Father wanted. And then he went on to say that he was given the authority by the Father to make the determination of who was going to live and who was going to be condemned. And he goes in and talks about what uh, the criteria is, what he will be looking at to evaluate a person whether or not they shall live or whether they shall die. <clears throat> and it's a great gospel verse in verse 24. Uh, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So it's a very uh, simple requirement that he's looking for. is somebody who takes the word of God seriously and believes it. That believes it to be the truth, that which you know, and and as a truth, it exposes you. It shows you your sin, but it also shows the reality of His uh, mercy and grace towards us. And and He basically says, "You you take this word seriously. You believe in Me, and that's it. You got eternal life, everlasting life." And then he then he turns his attention or turns the attention of the conversation from himself and who he is and brings it to the Jews. And these, we need to understand that these are not uh, ungodly Jews in the sense that they live their life in wildness and riot living, you know, whatever. Like, they're they're faithfully following God. They, they, 
go to the temple and all the synagogues and the feasts and everything else like that. So these are good Jews that appear to be godly, <clears throat> but they don't believe in Jesus. And he's, he shows them, he says that he, he's not just coming out of the blue and making some wild claims. There's actually strong testimony to indicate that he has come from God, as he says he has. And the first one that he talks about is John the Baptist. John the Baptist said that Jesus was sent from God. And then also the works that he does indicate that God is with him. And then he says to them, he says, uh, in verse 37, he says, The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. So God himself has testified of Jesus through his word. And he says, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So he exposes the fact that the word of God doesn't abide in them, doesn't dwell in them. And very curious, because they search the scriptures. I mean, like their entire life is... Uh, as we're surrounded by the scriptures. How can they not have, what does he possibly mean that they don't have the word of God abiding in them? I mean, they've memorized the scriptures. They've got it in their minds and in their hearts. And what he is getting at, uh, as one who has grown up in a Christian home and having experience to what it's like to have a, a solid knowledge of the scriptures and yet not have the word of God abiding in you. <laughs> I know what that's like. It's uh, <clears throat> it, it does seems like it wasn't until college where I really began to realize where I really saw that my sin was such that I was fully corrupt before God. And it wasn't that just in college that I kind of reached that level where, of a corruption and sin. It's just that I didn't see it till then. And see, if the Word of God is abiding in you, the Word of God is truth, and so it exposes. We are, a lot of times people will take, and the Jews were guilty of this, they would take the word of God and they would apply it to their outward actions. So you would you would curb your actions, and that's what they were called to do, in fact, as the Jewish people. They were to follow the law, to keep the law, to not be doing these sins. And so these, these Jews became very good at that. Their actions were spotless with regards to the word of God. They didn't murder, they didn't commit adultery, they didn't bear false witness against their neighbor, they went to the feasts and all these other things. But they failed to let the word of God abide inside them and expose the reality of their hearts, those evil thoughts and desires and so forth that come out of our heart. We don't allow those desires to be expressed in our actions, but they're there in our hearts. And if the word of God is abiding in you, it begins to expose the reality of that. And if you're faced with the reality of who you are, and particularly as a Jew, back in those days, and they having the temple of God and the ability to approach God, even with a stubborn and stiff-necked heart, they could approach God. So they would have to begin to, they would be faced with the reality of God's mercy towards them, that as ones who were corrupt on the inside, yet they could become close to God. So the truth of God would not only show the corruption in their hearts, but also the reality of God's mercy and his grace towards them. If they had had that abiding in them, the words that Jesus spoke would have drawn them to him. 
And then he says, so, so the first problem is that they didn't have the word of God abiding in them. And then the second problem, uh, he says in verse 42, he says, I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. So that truth of who they are, but then the love of the reality of God's love. And this is a difficult one sometimes to grab hold of, I think, because uh, in our culture we're so surrounded by statements of God's love. I mean, that's pretty much what every church tells us, that God, God loves you, he accepts you, he receives you as you are, and so forth. But the word of God being the truth exposes the reality of our sin. If you put God's love in the context of your sin, that's a whole different story. How You start to see just how uh, I was talking to a young guy and he was saying as, as we were talking about something he was struggling with, he began to realize that it wasn't just some kind of sin that was coming along and it attached itself to him and so now he's trying to battle this sin to try to get rid of it. It was something that came from inside of his heart and it always had been there. I mean, it was a part of who he was is really the source of the the struggle. And so to get rid of that sin, he began to realize it's impossible. You can't, how do you change yourself? How do you, you mean like this, I mean, this is like who I am. It's always going to be here. You can't get rid of it. It's a, a corruption there that seems utterly hopeless and so to be confronted then with the love of God, that God sees that sin there too, and yet he draws you close to himself and loves you, uh, then the love of God really carries meaning, I think, when we put it in the context of our sin. They hadn't done that. The Jews had not done that. <clears throat> Their problem was that, in verse 44, that they were receiving honor from one another. In other words, as long as other people saw what they did and were impressed with what they did, then they thought they were doing well. To seek for honor from God is to let the word of God in your heart and to show you that this is this is what righteousness is and you are way down here. You are far from righteousness. Uh, and to realize that no matter how well I do, I don't attain that righteousness that I ought to attain, that's to be seeking honor from God. How does he view me? How far do I fall short? And if you're seeking the honor from God and you're finding you're not getting that honor because you're not able to achieve the level of righteousness, you know, and he talks about being accused by Moses when they actually trusted, if, if, you, if they were in that position where they realized that they fell far short, uh, he says, if you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? How will you? You don't think you have a problem with sin, and why are you going to come to the Savior? Is effectively what he's saying. So they've got these problems where they they don't let the Word of God abide in them, inside them. They don't. The love of God doesn't dwell inside them because they're not aware of their sin. They're looking for honor from other people. So that's kind of those. That diagnosis is in the background. Then, as we move into chapter six. Uh, the first part of chapter 6, I don't think I will spend a lot of time dissecting each verse, but we'll read it, starting in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. 
And Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. And therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. We'll pause there for a second and just kind of set the story a little bit. There's a couple of points that John makes as he's telling the story. He doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus... He doesn't even tell us really if Jesus even taught the people. He completely passes over that. Uh, Doesn't tell us how long they had been out there. He just... But the details he does tell us is that uh, that it was the time of the Passover, which is an interesting one because part of the Passover as they were going into the wilderness was that they didn't have time to let the bread rise, you know. So that there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a factor of the bread inside the Passover as they went out into the wilderness. I don't know if that's why he relates it here or not. I'm not sure the significance of it, but I just see that he points it out. That the question of bread then starts right at the beginning. He brings out the point that Jesus asks the question of where are we going to buy bread? And the point that seems to come from the conversation is they don't have the resources to obtain bread. They don't have, first of all, they don't have the bread. And second of all, they don't have the resources to obtain the bread. They are out in a situation where there is no bread available and no opportunity to provide bread for these people. And all they've got is like five body loaves and a couple of fish. It's not enough to feed the whole crowd. And then the Lord Jesus takes that little bit and he feeds the whole crowd. That reality will play out as he continues his discussion or as he begins to talk with the Jews later on in this chapter and points out that he is, that they don't have real bread. They've got a form of bread. They've got physical bread, sure. They've got things from Moses, but they don't have the real bread unto everlasting life. And he brings that bread. So the the reality that they faced out in the wilderness is the reality that they had at the spiritual level. And it seems like he's trying to use, John is trying to use their their physical reality to explain the spiritual reality. And then the, the second odd point that John brings out is at the end of the meal, Jesus says, gather up the fragrance that remains so that there's nothing lost. I mean, it's an odd thing because we know that Jesus had plenty of capacity to make new bread if he needed. Why save the 12 baskets? Wouldn't it be enough just to grab five loaves and a couple of fish and just tuck them in the knapsack and and uh, always have them along so next time you're hungry, you just make a bunch more bread. 
But for him, it was important then to gather up these fragments that the, the fragments that remain, and so that nothing is lost. And later on in this chapter, we'll see how the Lord points out that the will of the Father was that of all that the Father has given him, he would lose nothing but would raise it up at the last day. And we begin to under, understand the force of his words there that if he is not willing to lose even bread that he can make, how much less will he be willing to lose the people whom God has given him because people are much more important than bread. And then finally, John brings out how the prophet or how the people said, this truly is the prophet that is to come into the world. And they were referencing a prophecy from Moses. Moses said, look, there's going to be another one that comes who is like me. You need to listen to him. And the men here said, seeing the sign that Jesus did, they said, well, this must be that prophet that Moses was talking about. But Moses' instruction had been to them, you need to listen to this man. And in John, as he tells the story, he doesn't tell us a word of what Jesus said, as if to say they weren't listening to a thing he said. They weren't grasping, they weren't seeing the significance in his words. They just saw the sign he did and were really impressed by it. So the story continues then in... uh, Oh, and that's and that's going to be that's going to come to again as well to play in the story because at the end of chapter six we see Peter saying, "Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We can't. I mean, I've heard what you said. There's nobody else says anything. I'm like I I can't think of any other teacher that I'm going to turn to that's going to give me words of eternal life like what you are giving me. But everybody else left. They didn't listen to the words that Jesus said." They just saw the signs that he did. So, verse 15, the story continues on. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. They wanted to, they wanted to bring the kingdom of God, to establish the kingdom of God. They had the king here. They had a bunch of people. Let's start the kingdom. And the Lord had no interest in that. He left them and went into the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening had come, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Very uh, simple telling of the event when the Lord walked on the water. And John draws our attention to the fact that as he came walking, they were, they were, it scared them. You know, it's at nighttime, and here you see somebody walking in the water, and they come up to you. You know that's some supernatural, something supernatural. It's not normal to have somebody come walking up, and and I don't know, sailors and superstitions, you know, you got here comes the grim reaper coming across the water and he's looking for their soul. I don't know what they were thinking when they were there. But the thing that convinced them was not the fact that Jesus could walk on the water, but the fact that he spoke to them. And when they heard his voice, it literally says, or no, it doesn't literally say, it says that he spoke and then they received him, willingly, maybe eagerly received him into the boat just from hearing his words. And I think there 
embracing of the Lord as they heard his words is what the Lord is what God is looking for is as his word goes out and people who are in the storm of their lives and they hear this word of peace from God a God who should be judging them to hear that word of peace and that word to convince them to willingly receive him I think that's what he's looking for and I think that's portrayed in the story. So, now we start getting into the little more complex part here. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that which his disciples had entered, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, They also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. He said, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs. Now obviously they did, in some sense, see the signs. They saw him. That, that's the whole reason why they followed him in the first place was because they saw the signs when he healed these diseased people and and they saw the sign when he took the food and he multiplied it and he fed the whole uh, 5,000 people with his bread. They saw that. So in some sense, they saw it. But there's another sense where he's saying, you didn't see the sign. And the sense in which they didn't see the sign is they didn't put two and two together and realize who Jesus was. They saw that he was a great prophet from God And he's going to expose to them what it is that they haven't seen about him. He says, you ate the loaves and were filled. He says, don't labor for the food which perishes. And this would be like the exact opposite of what their mindset was. Because throughout the Old Testament as Jews, they knew that they were in God's favor when God was blessing them with uh, good crops and livestock multiplying, the herds would multiply, good house, peace and safety. So when their physical blessings were multiplying and when their physical life was secured, that's when they understood that they were in the favor of God. So for them, they always were laboring, looking for the physical blessing. And now he's saying, don't labor for the food which perishes. This, The fact that I can take loaves, he says, and multiply them and feed you any old time or any old place I want to so that you can satisfy your stomach, that's insignificant. Don't even bother to pursue after that. The fact that I can take and heal you of all your diseases, that's insignificant compared to what I want to offer you. Don't labor for the food that perishes physical food, but labor for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. And again, to think about what he means by everlasting life, 
It's it's not just that a person can live forever or exist forever, but ever t- uh, life in a spiritual sense is being basically. When we'll get into this a little bit further, I'll touch on this a little bit more. But life being in in the spiritual sense is being accepted by God and approved by God, that God receives you to Himself because. When we live in our sin, or when we live independent of God, we're living our own life apart from the life of God, and we're going to die our own death apart from the life of God. The uh, To be brought in to being accepted and approved of by God, that is life for us. And he says, that's what I can give you, is life, being accepted and approved of by God. And he says, the reason I can give that to you is because God the Father has set my seal upon me. Like I have been, like he had said in chapter 5, I have been given the responsibility and authority to declare life unto whoever I want to, or to declare condemnation on whoever uh, needs it, or should have it. So he's, he's trying to draw their attention from the physical food over to the spiritual realities What's more important, to be healed of your physical ailment or to be healed of being separated from God, to be restored to God and received by him? Which is more important if you could only have one? And from the Lord's perspective, it's being restored to God and delivered from condemnation. That is far more important than anything he can do from the physical side of things. And he offers it to him. He says, I would give it to you. And so in verse 28, they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? What do we have to do to get this? Whatever life you're talking about, everlasting life or whatever it is that you're talking about. I mean, it sounds good. If that's what we're supposed to labor for, then how shall we labor? What works shall we do in order to obtain this? I mean, we, all right, you got us? We you? We want it, and we're willing to do whatever labor uh, we're required. And so Jesus answers them in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Which is not a work at all. But (laughs) I suppose you could say, you know, people oftentimes make a big deal about uh, faith not being a work. Well, here the Lord says that this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Which I mean, I guess, I mean, if the Lord says it's a work, it's a work, or whatever. <coughs> and I think we need to be careful when we talk about salvation not by works. It is absolutely not by works. My belief does not earn me salvation in any way, shape, or form. If you're going to call it a work, or whether you're not going to call it a work, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that's my help in the old lady across the street does not help earn me salvation. My belief does not help wash away my sins. It, it doesn't contribute to my salvation. It's just that when I believe, that's when God saves, right? But it's not that my belief contributes in some way to my salvation. So I think the Lord didn't have an issue with saying, this is the work of God, that you believe in him and he has sent. But think about, they're looking for, what works do we have to do in order to persuade God to give us this bread unto everlasting life. And he's answering their question directly. If you want to do something that God is looking for that will persuade him, so to speak, to give you eternal life, 
You need to believe in him whom he sent. This is what you you think, you know, when we think about doing works for God, we think about doing something great, like we're going to go out to Africa and we're going to preach the gospel to all of, you know, the heathen out over there. That would be a great work for God, right? And he would be really impressed by that. Or so we think. No, what God is looking for is for you to trust in Jesus. Quit trying to do something to impress God. Quit trying to be that missionary or pull people out of a ditch or what have you and try to gain acceptance by God by doing all these different things. Stop that. It's not working. You just need to rest in the Lord Jesus. I don't fully get why they went to verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? I guess they pretty much self-condemned themselves. Because Jesus said to them, Look, you don't... He says, You're seeking me not because you saw the signs. And we talked about how in one sense they saw the miracles. But here they tell you they themselves express what it is that they didn't see. They said, what sign will you perform then? As if feeding the 5,000 wasn't enough sign or healing the diseased wasn't enough sign. They did not believe that he was the one come from, he was the one come from God to give everlasting life. They didn't believe it. They said, you're going to, that's a, that's a pretty big promise that you're telling us that we don't have to, you know, be keeping the feasts or by keeping the law or whatever it is to please God. We don't have to do that. We just have to trust in you and somehow you are going to make us accepted to God. Bro, you're going to have to give us a way big sign in order for us to be convinced to just kind of put our confidence in you. That's what they're saying. Even though they saw the miracles, they didn't see the sign that told them that this is the one who came to give them everlasting life. Amazing. And, but I guess I can't point the finger because I grew up in a Christian home and it took me a long time before I realized what it meant to trust in him. And even yet, I'm still learning what it means to trust in him. They said in verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the, in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And they're obviously referring to that time when Moses brought them out of Egypt and they didn't have the food. Their bread that they had brought with them ran out and they didn't have any food and there was no McDonald's out in the wilderness to be able to get food. Uh, and so through Moses or what however, you know, Moses said there's going to come some manna and there was some manna. And so they, they said, well, you know, it's like he gave us, gave them bread from heaven to eat. Actually, it was God that gave them bread from heaven to eat, not Moses. I don't know if they understood that or, or if they're getting things confused or whatever. But to them, that was a sign that proved that Moses truly was from God, was sent by God. He had come out of, it seemingly he had come out of nowhere. Remember, he was... He had been run out of Egypt and had been out of Egypt for 40 years. And then he finally, God sent him back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. I mean, like, nobody remembered who Moses was after 40 years. He was, he was gone from their memory. There had been a regime change, in fact. Remember, the old Pharaoh had died and a new one had come in place. Uh, so there had been a big political changes. And, and now Moses shows up virtually out of nowhere. 
But he hadn't come out of nowhere. He had been sent by God to deliver the people out of Egypt. And these people are saying when he brought them into the wilderness and they got bread from heaven, that was when we knew that he really had been sent by God and he wasn't just coming out of nowhere. Well, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's, it's, I think the Lord is like saying, you know, with all that Moses did, being sent by God, and all the miracles that he did, and all the provision in the wilderness, the, the water when you guys needed water, and the food when you guys needed food, all those great things that he did, and all physical things, it was not the bread from heaven. Maybe it was a bread that came from heaven like an angel, but it wasn't the bread, the, the bread that gives everlasting life. It wasn't that the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were eating this manna, and every time they ate the manna, they got more everlasting life. The manna wasn't connected to everlasting life. It wasn't the bread from heaven. My Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. And I don't know, they probably didn't, I don't know how they could have possibly understood what he was talking about, but we can understand a little bit better now because of that little phrase that he says that this bread from heaven, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did, right? He was the bread from heaven. He was the one that came down and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I mean, they're like, all right. <clears throat> yeah, Moses, he did a lot of wonderful good things. And, uh, but if, if you've got something that tops that, if you've got actual bread from heaven, then they, they were kind of like the woman at the well. She's like, you got water where I don't have to thirst again? I'll take a shot at it. I mean, I don't believe it for a second, but you give me water so I don't have to drink again. I mean, I'm good to go. And these guys are like, all right, you give us bread. We'll, we'll try it out. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I want to think for a second about what he means by never hunger and never thirst. And I think it's answered in John chapter 4, actually. the bread of life, he who comes to me shall never hunger. In John chapter 4 you've got the story of the the woman, at, the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus comes up to her and he he asks her for a drink right off the bat and she she's kind of surprised that he would even talk to him and they get, they get, they get this discussion about water and he tells her, look, if, if you knew who I was, or if you knew who I am, how do you even say that? If you knew who I was you would ask me for water, and I would give you water, where I would give you living water. And she's all confused by what he's talking about and so forth, and that's when he tells her that the water he's going to give is a water that 
that leads to a fountain of everlasting life, a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Well, everlasting life caught her attention. I mean, she knew of John the Baptist. He had been through the area, or maybe she had been out to hear him or whatever. And she was aware of John the Baptist and knew that he spoke of the coming Messiah and knew that he spoke of repentance and being restored unto God, being baptized and washing away your sins and so forth. She knew about those things, whether she heard about it secondhand or whether she'd been out there herself, I don't know. So as soon as he mentioned everlasting life, I'm like she was one who evidently the word of God was dwelling inside of her. The truth of who she was was very real to her. And the reality of God's mercy and that there was an opportunity to find the mercy of God, I don't know that she had found it yet at this point, but she knew it was available. That was in her heart and she longed for it. And so when the Lord said to her, I can give you an everlasting life, that caught her attention. Now she's all in on that. She's, this isn't just sign of some random conversation. She's fully focused now. And she's like, give me this water so that I don't thirst or have to come here and drink. And she's probably still got things a little confused about physical water and so forth. But it is everlasting life, the business she's in. And he, and the Lord tells her to call her husband. And at that point, then she says, well, I don't have a husband. And the Lord, instead of condemning her for telling a lie, he says, you're speaking the truth because you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now you're not married to. So you think about the position that she was in. Why her other husbands left her, I don't know. We don't know if they died. We don't think so. More likely, it seems like she had been divorced five times. Now in that culture... A divorce was not, I mean, like in our culture, the wife can take the husband to court and she can divorce him. In that culture, the husband was the head of the home. The wife really had no say in anything. She couldn't take him to court. So for her to be divorced would mean that her man kicked her out of the house, effectively, and wrote a certificate and said, you are no longer my wife. Take your things and go. And that had happened to her five times. Rejected five times and the sixth guy what's the point of even getting married to him I would submit to you that in her heart is a hunger to be accepted being rejected that many times that has to be what she would be looking for and uh, he tells her that he is the Christ and it blows her mind. It says in verse 28 that the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? What she found was this was a man who knew who she was and all of the ugliness, and yet he went out of his way to talk to her in a way that broke cultural barriers. Men didn't talk to women, and Jewish, good Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women. And he did that knowing who she was. She found that he, she was accepted by him. And that's what she was thirsting for. She was thirsting after acceptance. And she found it in the Lord Jesus. Now, 
as she was in town, the disciples came back out and they had got food and so they were telling him, hey, it's time to eat. And he says in verse 32, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? So now we're talking food. We're done talking water, now we're talking food. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You think about what it means when you're, you know, when you're working and you're hungry, you just run out of zip and you work slower and you're less effective and, and there's something about going and you eat food and it re, I mean, just, I mean, it's not even, the food hasn't even hardly had time to digest, but already the energy starts to flow and you start to get back up and you're, you're ready to hit, uh, get back to work just as hard as what you were doing before. Like the food has that ability to just rejuvenate you. And so the Lord is saying, my rejuvenation is to do the will of him who sent me. And you think about his relationship with God, it was as a father, father, son. And we know what it's like to to be slaving away at shoveling the snow out of your driveway and you're just breaking your back and whatever else. To have your dad come by and to say, son, you're doing great work there. I mean, that you are doing an amazing job. I'm really proud of what you're doing. And how that can totally rejuvenate you and get you to throw in that snow farther than you ever have before. You know, we just, I think we know what that's like. And I think that's what the Lord is talking about. I mean, what we thrive on, uh, particularly as sons, is when our father gives us an approval. Good job. And I think that's what the Lord is saying. My food is to do the will, is to reach out to the sinners. That's what the Father wants for me to do. This this poor, lost Samaritan woman, this poor village of Samaritan people, to reach out to them. He approves of that. And that is rejuvenating like food. We hunger for the approval of our Father. So I'm thinking in chapter 6 then when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. They are wanting to know how do we get the approval of God? What do we have to do so that God will approve of us so that he will give us this everlasting life? And he is telling them, you want approval from God? You come to me. You're not going to gain God's approval by keeping the law perfectly, by doing all the feasts, by observing all the clean clean laws and everything else, <clears throat> you're not going to gain approval from God that way. And we know that's true. As we have tried doing those kinds of things, and yet we see in our hearts the failing, you know, as the word of God dwells in us, we see that this, <clears throat> this the best that I can do is not going to get me much, if any, approval from God. The only way that we can get approval from God is to trust in the Lord. He's the one who did the work and the will of God perfectly and gained all approval from God. And what God is calling us to do is to rest in his son who has his approval. And whoever trusts in his son, you know what God says? Well done. Good for you to trust in my son. Right? 
So if you come to me, you'll never hunger. If you are trusting the Lord, you will never hunger for the approval of God. You have it. And the same for thirst. If you believe in me, you'll never thirst for the acceptance. You'll never wonder, is God accepting me? If you're believing in me, you have God's acceptance. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger for the approval of God. You have it. He who believes in me will never thirst for acceptance from God. You have it. We're out of time. (laughs) So we'll stop right there, I guess. and he will, I mean, he, he leaves them in verse, or we leave at verse 36. I, I said to you, you have seen me, yet do not believe. You are not coming to me to find approval. You're not coming to me to gain that approval of God, that life, that everlasting life. Approval from God, acceptance from God. If we could have that as humans, that would be life for us. And we do have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is life to be accepted and approved of by God. What else could you want? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his willingness to come and do your will. We thank you for the salvation that we have in him. Again, a full and rich salvation. More than just forgiveness of sins or cleaning our slate. But bringing us into your everlasting favor. Into the grace of God being accepted and even approved received by you what uh, what a wonder that our Savior has accomplished and we thank you for him this morning. Amen.